Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. Responding to climate change is the biggest health opportunity we have ever had. If we do it, responding means mitigating as much as we can and adapting to what we can't mitigate. What's already happening today and what is kind of baked in at this point because it will take us time to pivot and to mitigate effectively. Early in my career, I thought, why isn't everyone talking about this? Why aren't we doing anything about this? And as I see other people on their journey, as they learn more, they want to do more and they want to bring it more and more into their work. And I hope that we can help bring people along with us here towards that decision making. I'm joined today by our old friend Melissa Lott, who is the Director of Research at the Centre on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. Hi, Melissa. How are you? Hey, Ed. I'm doing great. Good to see you. Good, good. Yeah, thanks very much for joining us today. And also today, this is another show when we're very pleased to welcome a special guest. We have Dr. Sarah Kapnick, who's the Chief Scientist at NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Sarah, Dr. Kapnick, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So now... NOAA is the government agency in the US that monitors the air and the seas around the country. It runs the National Weather Service and also keeps track of climate change. And it's that aspect in terms of its work on climate change that we're particularly wanting to talk about today. A warming world has really critical implications for energy production. And that's the subject we're going to be discussing for most of this show. Before we get into that, though, Sarah, perhaps you could Tell us a little bit more about your role at NOAA. Uh, what do you do there? Yeah, my job is that I am responsible for advancing NOAA's science and technology priorities with a focus also on scientific integrity. So people need to trust the science that we produce, and we need to make sure that we uphold that. We also have to advance our public-private partnerships. Increasingly, we need to make sure that we are working with the private sector, making sure that our information is getting out there, but also trying to accelerate innovation. There's also strategic development of all the science to meet our mission needs and how that's evolving in the changing world. So strategy around what is the future of science and technology, what does it look like, and how do we get there? And then also communicating our science and its applications to a broad range of external audiences that need the data, the products, the services that we produce. Right. I think it's always interesting when we have new guests on the show to get them to talk a little bit about their career paths and how they got to the positions they now hold. How did you get to that job? How did you get to be chief scientist at NOAA? Yeah, um, I had a really winding career path compared to anyone else who's had this role who's mainly been in uh, straight science. So um, out of undergraduate, I worked in investment banking, covering insurance and reinsurance, um, looking at risk and understanding what is catastrophe risk? How do you start monitoring it, understanding it, and seeing that there were gaps in climate change about 20 years ago, not being integrated into those risk analyses. So then I got a PhD in atmospheric and oceanic sciences from UCLA, but I also got kind of this mini MBA program and policy program around uh, leaders for sustainability from their Institute of Sustainability and Environment. And so I learned about policy and how policy was really critical for dealing with climate, but also how to start develop strategic businesses. And I had a renewable energy forecasting company, actually, that I started and was funded by the DOE. And so I had this winding path of doing different things, but then ultimately ended up at Princeton University as a postdoc and then became a permanent federal scientist at the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory, which is on Princeton's campus, which is a NOLAB. And so I spent 10 years developing fundamental climate models, 
and climate information with an eye towards the beginning of my career, climate risk, understanding how to quantify it, understanding how to predict it in advance. Um, so I spent 10 years doing that. And then ended up at J.P. Morgan as a senior climate scientist and sustainability strategist. And so, again, was translating how to use climate information, how to understand risks, how to understand opportunities. And so I was doing that for a while and was asked then to come back and to join the Biden-Harris administration as NOAA's chief scientist. Bringing with me all of those experiences, how climate and data from NOAA are used in the private sector, but then also what does the world look like and how do we get there to make a sustainable world? Yeah, I got it. No, that is very interesting. So what we're going to be doing on this show mostly is talking about climate change and its effect on the energy industry. And I wanted to start off just getting a bit of a sense of what it is that NOAA does with relation to climate change. Obviously, NOAA has an enormous range of responsibilities. But in terms of climate and how the climate is changing and what the effects of those changes are. What exactly is your responsibility at NOAA? Yeah, so first and foremost, we collect data. We are monitoring the Earth, and we're actually monitoring it all the way from the bottom of the ocean all the way to the surface of the sun. We have 700-plus facilities across the United States and territories where we have our offices for the different, um, different projects that we have. We have 15 ships, 10 aircraft, 16 satellites that look at both Earth but also look at sun for space weather. And then we have 200 plus ocean buoys, 122 Doppler radars, and then we have uncrewed systems. So from the bottom of the ocean all the way to the surface of the sun, we are monitoring constantly what is happening in all those locations. And with that information, we are producing that information and making it available to the public to be able to monitor and understand uh, changes in the environment over time. But then that also gets transformed uh, with models into predictions for the future forecast predictions projections so we can look into the future for minutes hours days out to centuries right and you're monitoring the climate uh, just in the u.s or globally uh, we are modeling globally because to be able to understand what is happening in one location you actually need a lot of information about what's happening in the entire earth system right and in terms of how this relates to the energy industry then what is your relationship with the industry so I have worked closely with the energy industry in my position as NOAA's chief scientist. I've attended multiple industry meetings and had discussions with CEOs because people are really concerned about what is happening into the future and how can they plan for it. But then also, how can they better make use of forecasts and predictions at those minutes to multi-month um, or multi-year timescales to be able to make plans for dealing with changing conditions over time? And so, Melissa, you're a consumer of a lot of this data, is that right? You actually use it in your research. Yes, so there's a lot of work going on at Columbia University, I'd say more broadly. So this is the Center on Global Energy Policy, which is in the School of International Public Affairs that I work at. But you go to Lamont Darty, you go to other parts of campus, and we're really grappling with this idea of what data do we have, and then what data don't we have that we need to think about ways to get to that information and try to find proxies. And I'll say NOAA data sets definitely part of our our, our usage um, here at the university. We consume that along with all the data that we talk about so routinely on the show, Ed, from like the Energy Information Administration, the International Energy Agency. And so much of it goes back to, you know, we're operating all these huge pieces of infrastructure in a changing climate. So what data do we have about what's already happening and what could happen in the future from 
lots of different folks' models? And how do we consume that data in a way that provides us with insights on what we might do in terms of policy and regulations and actions to support community resiliency, among many other things? And actually, you even mentioned one of the Institute's Energy Information Administration. We produce a seasonal forecast of what temperature mm-hmm. and precipitation look like. Um, so that's multi-month mm-hmm. to multiple seasons advance. It goes out to a year or two years um, in some of our research. And they use that to try and look at their demand models to understand what is energy demand going to be due to temperatures. And this is such a key point because we design our energy systems. So let's go into power as one example. We design it around peak demand. I mean, we design a lot of our systems around peak demand. Um, And we think about what does that peak look like in the future? What time of year does it happen? Geographically, where is it happening? How integrated is our grid so that we can respond to that? And so it's not just about supply side resiliency. It's understanding, you know, what's the point of this energy? It's to keep us safe in our homes, keep our businesses running, all of that. And so what is it going to do to demand on that side? And so how do we make sure we're supplying that demand, providing flexibility tools, all that? You can't answer the demand question if you don't understand what changes are happening in our climate and the impact on weather, high temperatures, how often they happen, when they happen, where they happen. And the precipitation question I mean, I'm sitting in the state of New York. We think about hydropower and water a lot, um, but water is also the core of the conversation in California and Texas, et cetera. It goes well beyond energy. And these things, they matter a lot. And I think we're all coming to a realization that the last 50 years aren't a good proxy to apply for how we plan things out for the next 50 years because um, things are changing. So given the tools we have and the data we have, and Noah's at the core of a lot of these discussions, you know, what do we do? Right. So just to jump in there as a, as a kind of a way to frame some of this discussion and to think about it, my observation is very often when we talk about climate change and energy, we're thinking about mitigation. We're thinking about how to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions produced by energy production and use in order to limit the extent of climate change. What you're talking about here is the other side of things is adaptation, right? I mean, so this is all about, it's not really anything to do with influencing the course of climate change. It's saying, given that climate change is happening, this is what's happened. This is what we think might happen in the future. This is how we think the energy industry and others need to respond to it. Is that right? I think it's both. Um, And I would say it can get into a pretty circular conversation really quickly, right? So if you assume that the energy system does not decarbonize, then the things that you project in terms of what the climate's going to do look different than if you assume that in tandem with adapting to the changes that are already happening and that will continue to happen until we, you know, really start to bend the curve and get emissions down really low. Um, you need to think about both the mitigation and the adaptation because they feed into each other. Um, you keep putting greenhouse gases in the air and you're going to get a different future than if you start reducing those levels. And so within all the scenarios that we look at, It's about painting the picture across the spectrum of, okay, if we get emissions down quickly, what are we doing? What do we need to do in terms of adaptation if we mitigate a lot? And what do we need to do if we don't mitigate as much? Um, But regardless, in all these scenarios, we're looking at building out new infrastructure, right? We're looking at replacing existing infrastructure, improving existing infrastructure, and in large swaths of the world, um, and even in the United States, putting in new stuff to connect the 14% of people, let's say, on Indian lands in this country that don't have access today, not to mention the hundreds of millions that don't have it outside of the United States. So it's it's all of the above. It's a tricky, tricky set of questions and a lot of complicated math. And that it's, it's smart investment 
thinking to be as you're putting this infrastructure in to say, okay, we're doing this for mitigation, but also what do we need to know in terms of the changing conditions to make sure we have a resilient system so we don't have outages and so we don't have to pay to make upgrades and retrofits in the future because we've already considered how the world is evolving in time with respect to climate. So we're ready for that in the future. Um, and I would also add that the question of using this environmental information, this environmental intelligence, isn't just about adapting to climate. It's also smart business operations to be able to use this data. In the last 10 years, we've had major advancements in seasonal prediction, uh, seasonal climate prediction, and being able to understand temperature and precipitation, what those patterns will look like a couple months out, likelihood of heat waves in the United States nine months out. And so that science, as it's evolving, is providing information that we didn't have before many months in advance to be able to plan for it. And so it's not just about adapting to these extremes and these changes, but it's also actually making good use of the new science that exists in this field. Right. So that's really interesting. And I want to dig down into that a little bit and think about a few specifics. As you say, so you, you do the climate modeling and you're able to make some predictions, perhaps on a, a short-term basis, maybe on a long-term basis as well, about some of those key variables. How do companies use that information then to make decisions? And what are people actually doing? Are companies right now making decisions to do things differently based on climate modeling? Uh, short answer is yes. <laughs> and so for an example, um, I've had discussions with people that are planning for hydropower in the American West, and they're planning for more arid future because of expectations that there won't be uh, the constant amount of water in some of the reservoirs, particularly in California, due to expectations of more arid years, um, that there won't be as much water in the reservoirs every single year that average may drop or there may be higher variability. And so they're planning for what do they do to be able to offset that hydropower loss um, due to the lack of water during those time periods when they don't have the rains in California. And Ed, I'll just give an example that's actually outside of the energy industry, though, of course, connected to it. If you go on to AT&T's website and you can read about the studies that actually are behind a lot of their business decisions that they're making um, outside of their website, you go on there and they talk about protecting our business and our communities from climate change by having more resilient networks. And if you look at some of the science behind it and you look at other um, papers that you can read about analyzing cell phone networks and how it is in a changing climate, the frequency of storms, let's say in Florida, affect how you build out a cell phone network so that communications can stay on, on, let me say this again. So in Florida, let's say, how do you actually build out a communication network so that you can make a call during the middle of some terrible event, something where you need to keep communications and lines open. And so this isn't just energy companies that are thinking about how do I build out, you know, my business, my infrastructure that I'm in charge of. It's other things as well. And AT&T is a really interesting example. And so one of the things that's happening a lot, of course, in the U.S. is we're putting a lot more wind and solar power on the grid on those energy sources by definition are dependent more on the weather. It, does that mean that these kind of weather and climate predictions are even more important now for the energy industry than they used to be. Yes, it is becoming more important. And also those forecasts and projections are more important as we realize and understand and start quantifying how historic um, observations and historic data has some limits. So an example of this is California recently um, had a series of really wet um, really wet weeks um, in December and January. 
And in the last 20 years, they've been in one of the worst droughts in 1,200 years. And so they haven't had um, as many wet days where the solar production is much lower. And so I was talking with one CEO around how is he quantifying what his expectations are for outage days in solar um, maybe shouldn't be based on those 20 years of the driest years on record. They should have expectations for some wet weeks or wet months. Um, but also we can have some quantification of how many of those days you might have into the future and changes in that expectation for what expectations of um, power production might actually be. And one thing that we really need to be clear on here is that a changing climate does not just impact variable renewable power. It affects all of our systems, including the actual wires on the grid. If you've got these extremely hot days happening more often, it affects that. If you think about cooling capabilities around fossil fuel plants, around nuclear plants, how much water are you going to have available? Every single technology we have is affected by these extremes and also by a changing climate. And so factoring that into both the fuels that we've used for a long time um, and how our use of them and our ability to use them changes in the future, as well as variable renewables and new technologies and newer technologies. you got to think about both. So at the beginning of this conversation, Sarah, you said really what you were interested in fundamentally was risk management. And that seems to be absolutely the heart of this. And it seems like you get into some very complicated questions, don't you? I mean, one of the things you have to think about with climate modeling is the uncertainties in the modeling. There's always going to be error bars in anything that uh, a model gives you and when, as you say, I mean, that example of California seems like a really interesting one where we've had one year which has had very high precipitation after 20 years of low precipitation. And the question of whether there's some shift going on here or whether that's just an erratic outlier year seems to be quite difficult to answer. So how do people deal with these kind of questions then? How do you think about investment, risk management, under uncertainty, making the right business decisions for the long term, given the number of moving parts and the extent of really pretty fundamental uncertainty, uh, a lot of what you're being told from the data and from the modeling. Businesses need to make decisions under uncertainty all the time. Um, at least this one is based in physics. <laughs> so we have, um, we actually can have a lot of information from the climate models for the seasonal predictions out to the projections to understand the variability into the future. And it's a matter of being intelligent about what one is trying to manage towards and understand. Um, and the California example is a really strong outlier because there is a uh, a ratification where it's getting drier and it's getting hotter background due to climate change, but it's also currently in the worst drought in 1200 years. And so there's the worst drought in 1200 years. Those types of drought usually last 30 to 40 years in our historic record. Um, so there are expectations you can get wet years still within that, but it's also so exceptional that people are still trying to grapple with how do we start making and use the information that we have to be able to plan for that. And that's why there have been so many discussions in that in the Western region in particular around use of seasonal prediction. So understanding now, okay, we're in this drier, hotter record, but what are those extremes that we might expect, those wet extremes or those cool extremes over the next few months? Because then you can adjust your planning around it. You adjust your planning for how to deal with it, how to prepare for infrastructure um, post-disasters to be able to rebuild, 
Um, but then also having an idea of what the uncertainties might be and trying to characterize those uncertainties more than in the past. Melissa, how do you think about this issue of uh, decision-making under uncertainty? So when we talk about decision-making under uncertainty, what I think of with climate models and climate data is actually it's reducing some of the uncertainty. It's taking some of our blinders off. It's allowing us to see what is actually a more probable future. And so to me, it's providing additional insights and it makes it so that we're not flying blind into the future, but we have an idea of what are some reasonable, probable futures that we could be operating in. And then what are the things that we see across all the scenarios that we can be doing to have a more resilient and a stronger energy system? And it's not the climate data alone that gives you all those insights. It's the melding of that climate information with the operators, with the social scientists, with others that understand how it changes behavior, how it changes demand for different things, how it changes outages, but also how it might create new opportunities. Bringing that all together and the people that are working with the built environment, thinking through what these things then actually look like as they start to manifest is then how you start to develop your planning for your operations, for your investment decisions, for your infrastructure decisions. So I want to raise another practical example then, uh, going back to California, which is the case of the wildfires that have been a massive problem up and down the West Coast of the US in recent years. And when you look at the causes and what's been driving that, low precipitation for many, many years, consequences of climate change do seem to be an important factor. And clearly that's had enormous Uh, implications for the power industry in California in particular, the way the grid's been operated, the way generation's been run, and so on. When you look at those wildfires and climate change, are there lessons you can draw and are there there insights you could provide to the industry? Are there things you can say to energy companies in that region that will help them behave differently, make different kinds of decisions about investment and so on? That means that the impact of those wildfires will be reduced in the future. We have expectations of the regions where wildfire weather, weather that is very conducive to wildfires to take place and where they can happen, that's expected. Those regions are expected to spread under climate change in the United States. Um, so it's not just California. It also becomes Oregon and Washington, and they've also had some major wildfires in recent years. It's also Colorado. There's also actually pockets of Florida where you can also get wildfires. Um, during the dry season. And I would say as a personal anecdote, going back to when I was doing my PhD, I remember talking to people at PG&E and talking to people at Southern California Edison. And it was seen as wildfires were a Southern California problem um, because of the certain conditions that create wildfires in Southern California. It wasn't seen as much, you know, more than 20 years ago in 20 years ago in being a Northern California problem as well. And so the wildfire risk has spread Um, across California and more northerly. And so these risks are growing in different parts um, of the country where they weren't before. And so understanding what those projections say are really important. And when I've been in some of these industry meetings, there have been discussions around lessons learned of how do you start planning for it? Where should you bury lines? How do you make those decisions where to bury lines? How do you make decisions about where you might cut power during extreme weather? And how do you communicate that in advance for your operations? And so we as NOAA are providing information that are used to figure out potentially mapping that where people then map where those risks are so they can understand them and plan for them in their infrastructure. 
But we also talk with them about the forecast so that they know when to use the forecast to then put in place their operational plans of what to do when extreme fire weather conditions are met. And one thing I'll say for those who don't follow data around like wildfire risk, um, one of the things that we do publish as an indicator in the Lancet countdown free online, I think it's indicator 1.2 something. It's in chapter one. We talk about wildfire risks in different countries and zooming in on the United States is one example you can in the data. But what the indicator showed last year was that if you look at exposure to really high and extreme wildfire risk, it increased in 61% of countries around the world. And those are the ones that we have some data on. This is satellite-based data, a bunch of stuff that I'm sure Sarah could go into great detail on. Um, but it's showing that this risk is something that is felt well beyond California. It's felt around the world, and it's affecting populations around the world. And so, Sarah, as you say, you meet executives in the energy industry, no doubt many other industries a great deal, and you talk to them about what the data show, what your models show, how much of a sense do you get that people are really listening to you? Do you think they're kind of properly taking on board the insights that you're able to share with them? Do you think you're having a real effect on decision making? Or are there plenty of other pressures and factors on them, maybe sometimes short term financial considerations that mean they're not making the right kind of decision for the long term, or whatever it might be, that mean people don't fully incorporate all the information and understanding that they could be incorporating from climate science? I would say that there's a spectrum of where people are in their journey of understanding climate change and also thinking about how it affects their businesses. And the people that are the most forward thinking and active on this are the ones that have either had to deal with it because they've had some sort of major event that has happened and they've had to then deal with the financial consequences of it. And so they're trying to harden and they're trying to figure out what to do about it. And then there's the innovators that are thinking about, okay, this is happening. Where's also the innovation and where are the opportunities for me that I can now think about this in terms of our investment strategy, in terms of our communications? How do we start forming partnerships? And so some of those companies reach out to us wanting to form partnerships to figure out how to use our data, how to collaborate with NOAA. Um, and they're then trying to be at the forefront of it so they can be leading on what is happening on climate change. And then at the opposite end of the spectrum, there are people that haven't started working on it because they either don't think it affects them or um, for whatever reason they have chosen that it's not something that needs to be on their priority list. Um, but I will say that climate is changing around the entire world. Um, changes in extreme events are happening all around the world. It's not isolated in one place. And so it will be something that people will have to grapple with because climate change will continue to happen until we no longer are putting emissions into the atmosphere. And do you think attitudes are shifting? Do you think there is this kind of broadening consciousness, this increased willingness to act on the information that people are getting from climate science? And if so, how fast is it moving? Absolutely. I think that there's been a turning point in the last year or two, actually, on this point. And recently, I gave a speech at an investor conference um, held by a major bank. And I put up on the slideshow um, a graph of the number of disasters in the United States and also the cost in the United States of billion-dollar disasters. So last year, there was $165 billion in losses due to billion-dollar disasters in the United States. And it was the third worst on record. And there was a lot of discussion around how people are realizing disasters are happening and they have these increased costs. And there was discussion around what to do about that. Um, but then also what opportunities does that mean if society starts 
grappling with that. How does that change investor behavior? Um, and I would also say that there's heightened interest in what do we know and what do we not know? And how do I then start making decisions around that uncertainty? Um, how do I get smart about it? How do I then also use that information to my advantage? And Melissa, you're also talking to a lot of people that are working in the energy industry, involved in it in various different ways. Do you also see this shift in perceptions of uh, the significance of climate change and the importance of thinking about climate risk? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just part of the conversation now in a way that is absolutely different from the conversations I experienced 15 years ago. It's acknowledged, it's integrated. Now, does that mean every single utility that I engage with, every single energy company I engage with is already integrating their planning models or climate models and all that? No, 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 not at all. That's not what I'm saying. But there's an acknowledgement of the fact that this is happening. It will have impacts. And we need to think about those impacts in some way as we're planning things in the future. Some organizations are in the early stages, the very early stages. Others are more advanced. We have a partnership with the New York Power Authority. We're really digging into the build out of energy infrastructure and how it looks like in a changing climate. Um, and all of these risks that we're talking about, because you have to think about the demand side, the supply side, extreme short-term events, long-term planning, all the above. But it's it's not kind of run-of-the-mill, what everyone does as a matter of course yet, but man, compared to 15 years ago, I don't know, Ed, Sarah, to me, it feels completely different, its presence in the conversation. And so question, where might it go from here? If you think about 15 years from now, or 10 or even, even five years from now, as people increasingly take on board what's happening to the climate and what it means, are we going to see very different decisions being taken? Are we going to be seeing companies being run in significantly different ways as awareness, consciousness of everything related to climate change kind of really takes root across the industry? I think that there'll be more sophisticated use of climate information, as well as climate predictions, um, than there has been in the past. Yeah, I agree with Sarah. I mean, I, I think we'll have more sophisticated tools, more sophisticated integration of information. Um, and I think that it will just become an expectation that you consider this stuff. It will be the baseline. You have to have it. It won't be a nice to have anymore. It'll yeah, be a have to have. Exactly. Yeah, that is really interesting. It'll be definitely something to watch as it evolves. Something else, Sarah, I know you've been looking at, which I was very interested in and wanted just to ask you about, is the question of the macroeconomic impact of climate change. So looking beyond any specific industry to what it means for the US economy as a whole. Can you talk a little bit about that? What have you been thinking uh, about that and what are some of the conclusions that flow from your work? Yeah, some of my early research when I was a research scientist at NOAA before was around the future of GDP growth due to climate change and understanding financial market risk and exposure to climate um, and seeing that climate does have an impact and is starting to be shown in impacts in markets, but also expectations of GDP variability and growth. And in May of 2021, President Biden signed an executive order that required a review and understanding of climate risk um, to the federal government. And as part of that, a National Academy of Sciences roundtable has been stood up around figuring out how to model macroeconomic climate risk and um, improving rigor and understanding and developing that out. And I see that as a key area, again, where uh, seasonal climate predictions could underpin macroeconomic modeling. 
And in fact, it already does in some countries, particularly in Africa and nations where agriculture relates to a significant portion of their GDP. Seasonal climate predictions around drought really matter for their economies. And so they take the seasonal predictions of drought, they put it through their food modeling, and then they also have it in their economic modeling already. Um, And so I expect that there will be more around trying to understand macroeconomic climate modeling or the nexus between those two and being able to do it on a seasonal basis, but also um, a decadal basis and multi-decade basis. Melissa, and this question of macroeconomic impact of climate change, this is something you look at a lot, right, as well? Yeah, I mean, when you start really looking at the impacts of climate change and we often focus in the world that I sit in most of the day, um, which is the energy world, on how much it costs to you know transition to zero carbon energy systems, how much we'd spend kind of business as usual, and then how much you know we might spend if we go to net zero at different paces. But within that, you know, we talk about those costs, but then you think about the cost of the economy that comes with either moving faster or slower. Um, and not just from climate change. I mean, a lot of the work that we do goes well beyond that. As you've heard me and, and listeners of the show have heard me talk about air pollution and the co-impacts on human health and what that does. Um, also, these wildfire risks, these extreme hate days that do you know link back to climate in a lot of different ways. Think about productivity, the number of folks who can't go to work, especially in the agricultural sector, but also in construction, in these services that require you to be outdoors in these extreme heat events um, that we're seeing in some... I don't know, places in the country that haven't really lived with that before, um, you know, and maybe don't have air conditioning. If you live in San Francisco or along the, you know, West Coast, in a lot of it, you don't even have those systems on your house. So what happens if you're even trying to work at home? So we look at a lot of this um, and we think about it often at the center on global energy policy as what does that mean for how many more air conditioners might be installed for those, you know, in-house experiences. But then also, what do we think about labor productivity? And what do we think about what that does to activities in the Central Valley and in the southwestern United States? Um, And what might happen over time if we're having to move more water around, but also alter our labor behavior and our labor practices, because there just is a point where you can't work outside and be in any way safe. Yeah. And by safe, we mean if you outside, you get heat stroke or you die because of the heat. Once it's too hot and it's too humid, the human body can no longer cool itself. And so you can't be outside. And so when we have these extreme heat events in places where people aren't used to it, we see mass deaths. For example, in 2021 in the summer, a heat wave through the Pacific Northwest killed over 700 people because they didn't have the infrastructure. They didn't have air conditioning at home. And people also didn't understand that, you know, if you're a UPS driver and you don't have air conditioning in your car, you are going to get heat stroke if you don't find a cooling center and go into that cooling center um, for different times. And so people uh, need to have these plans when you have these extreme heat occurrences. And I'll say beyond human health, because of course I, I focus a lot on human health in my own research, you think about impacts on you know, different cities when they have these extreme events and you think of a big storm coming in and sitting over Houston or flowing through Florida and, you know, cutting a broad swath through the state and the impacts that you have in terms of rising insurance claims, having to rebuild homes, you know, you can do all the public health discussions and those are big numbers on their own. But then you think about actually how we're paying for the change of climate right now. Um, and we are paying for it. We're just paying for it in different ways. Um, many of which have direct impacts on GDP. Yeah. And that, goes all the way back to the original discussion about macroeconomic <laughs> climate yep. risk of yep. all these things become interconnected. And when you start thinking about 
how that, that is interconnected, you start seeing these also points in the system where there may be places that are becoming weaker and weaker and may break. Yeah, that was the point I was about to make, which is just listening to the two of you talk about this and talk about some of the issues that it raises. It's such an important conversation and such an important reminder of the impact of climate change and how broad it is and how so many different issues are affected by it. And when you think about what the climate touches, which is sort of obvious if you say it like this, it seems like, well, obviously, you know, it affects everything, but it really does affect everything. And if you start to dig into all the different ways that a warming world affects our lives, working lives, every other aspect of our lives, every industry, every country in the world, it's a great reminder, I think, of just what a significant phenomenon it is. And to go back to the point we were discussing right up at the beginning about mitigation and adaptation, it's a great reminder of the importance of mitigation, because given the breadth and complexity and impact of climate change, there are always going to be limits to what you can do with adaptation. And you are always going to be able to tackle climate change more effectively if the extent of that change is limited. And to the extent that global warming is unconstrained and just goes on and goes further and further and further, our ability to adapt to it becomes correspondingly reduced. And so, as I say, I think it's great to just be having this kind of conversation, to be integrating, if you like, the various aspects of climate change, to be thinking about mitigation and adaptation at the same time, because it's a great way to remind everybody of just how important mitigation is. I mean, when you go back to the work that I publish every year with a whole team of people, so it's not just me, this is many dozens of scientists around the world, in the Lancet Medical Journal, in our original paper, this was back in 2014, 2015, we were writing it, we said that responding to climate change is the biggest health opportunity we have ever had. And if we do it, responding means mitigating as much as we can and adapting to what we can't mitigate. Um, what's already happening to now, today and what is kind of baked in at this point, because it will take us time to pivot and to mitigate effectively. And those numbers around the health side of things just get stronger the more and more and more evidence we have about the impacts of, of the climate. And you can go through, I mean, the data sets and the data sets that we, you know, get from a lot of different organizations and combine and model and analyze. It's all out there for free. People can dive into this stuff and look at any of the indicators we publish every year. And every indicator you open is just like, okay, I was already convinced that this was huge. And then here's this other one. You know, so I was looking at heat waves and impacts on vulnerable populations, so over 65 and infants. Okay, whoa, those are huge numbers. And then you go into labor productivity. So for people my age and younger and older and, you know, what it does to actually what we're able to do, not just in the U.S., which is big enough numbers, but also in countries outside of the U.S., when you've got these predominantly agriculture-based communities um, in these countries that are being affected the most by climate change. I mean, the numbers just keep piling up and it makes it very obvious that the cost of inaction swamps anything we're talking about in terms of the cost of action. We talk about how huge the cost of action is, but it's nothing compared to those massive numbers that I'm looking at and that we all are looking at. It, yeah, it's a fundamental problem of short-term <laughs> planning versus long-term planning that there's a lot that we need to think about and we need to do um, to be able to deal with these types of problems as they unfold. 
Um, and we need to make sure that we're thinking about those long-term problems while we're still also dealing with what's in front of us and our short-term problems that we have. Um, and there needs to be a balance between that. Um, and I would say that early in my career, I thought, why isn't everyone talking about this? Why aren't we doing anything about this? And for me, it's been something I've thought about and been worried about for a very long time. Um, and I feel that as I see other people on their journey, as they learn more, they want to do more and they want to bring it more and more into their um, into their work. And I hope that we can help bring people along with us here um, towards that decision making. Well, and I'll say to that point, as people want to do more, one of the most optimistic things I run into is the fact that we have solutions. We actually have tools to mitigate and adapt. It's about choices, making those choices to mitigate or adapt. That's the question mark. It's not whether we have a tool in the toolbox we can use. That's not the question anymore, which is thanks to a ton of innovation, a ton of investment over many, many years and decades by a lot of scientists and engineers and social scientists and, I mean, the gamut. And I find that really encouraging because it means that we can do something if we choose to. How is the conversation changing? It's no longer of collecting that information or figuring out all those technologies. It's now implementation. It's figuring out how do we start implementing the solutions and how do we educate and get translators of that climate information or of that climate future um, to be able to actually take that information and put it into action. Well, look, thank you very much indeed for coming along today to share those thoughts with us and to share your insights into how you are contributing to that debate and contributing to everyone's understanding of climate change and what it means. We do have to leave it there, unfortunately, but just before we go, uh, just time for our free electrons, um, little personal things that we all have brought in. Uh, Sarah, have you got one? Yeah, we didn't talk about this at all today, but I encourage people to look at the NOAA sea level rise viewer. So see, you can actually go and look at different parts of the country and see where sea level rise and how that changes over time. Um, and that is another aspect of climate change that is affecting coastal communities and will be an increasing part of the conversation going forward as sea levels continue to rise, expected 10 to 12 inches um, by 2050 across most of the U.S. and up to a foot and a half in the Gulf Coast states by 2050. Sounds very interesting. Thanks a lot. I'll go and check that out. Where do I find that? Is that what NOAA.org or where, where's the... Uh, you will find, find it, it on one of the NOAA.gov websites. Or NOAA.gov. Sorry. Right. Thanks very much. Sounds good. Melissa, what's yours? So I've got two. Um, one is that I believe the day that this comes out, that this podcast will come out, is the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion in Ukraine, uh, the 24th. And I have been going back through, you know, I know when the Center on Global Energy Policy, when this first happened, we sat down as a team and we said, all right, how can we help provide insights in a time when people are going to be making a lot of fast and high impact decisions in the face of uncertainty? How can we be a resource of information and data and evidence? You know, what is the research telling us? What have we learned about, in, you know, in the past that we can apply moving forward? So I've been going through just a year's worth of short and long form explainers and commentaries and insight pieces by my colleagues, and they're all available for free on our website. So that's the first one. Um, more direct to what we're talking about, I will also say that I have had a book recommended to me by three people who do not know each other to my knowledge over the past two weeks, and I just feel like that means I should read it. It's called The Water Knife. Have you guys heard of this book? Yes. Do you know what? Yeah, I have it. In fact, in fact, okay. I have a copy on my bookshelf at the moment. I need to and read I've, it. But I've never opened it. I, but that writer... Um, Paolo yeah. 
Pasigalupi. Is that how you say it? I just, I'm sure I completely um, messed up the last name, but yeah. Sarah, have you read it? Because I've been told I need to read this book. And so I'm going to read this book now. I started reading it and I had to put it down because I had other pressing things to do. (laughs) I was worried I wouldn't stop. Um, Yeah, I've been going through all climate fiction recently and it keeps coming up. And I, I think it's an important one to read with what's happening right now in the American West. I've read a book of his short stories that I thought were absolutely brilliant. He's a terrific short story writer. And then uh, I wasn't sure about, uh, you know, at full length, at a novel length. But okay, now I've heard that recommendation, I'll go and check it out. But make sure you have time because you will want to continue reading it, <laughs> even if you have other work to do. <laughs> right. Important warning, indeed. So uh, my uh, free lecture is really just an observation um, uh, story that was in the news this week, which is that the price of carbon in the EU's emissions trading system has risen above 100 euros a tonne for the first time. So current exchange rate, I think that's about $107 per tonne. And I just wanted to note that and say, that's really quite significant in terms of the price of carbon getting that high. And when you think about, I mean, you know, our modelling, for instance, with McKinsey, I think we say that in order to get on a 1.5 degrees trajectory, you'd need a global carbon price of about $160 a tonne by 2030. So clearly, this is uh, it's only in one economy, only in the EU, but it's kind of in the ballpark of that kind of level. And a carbon price of $100 plus value makes a whole load of things economically viable. There's a lot of carbon capture that'll work if you can get $100 plus a tonne for it. Um, there's a lot of advanced nuclear that's going to work there. There's a lot of other technologies, different kinds of storage that will work if you can get a carbon price of more than $100 a tonne. So it just struck me as really kind of significant. And when people say sometimes these high carbon prices, these very... Uh, essentially restrictive carbon policies driving down very hard on emissions. When people say those kind of policies are impossible, actually they are apparently not impossible and Europe Europe is doing it. And obviously Europe is not the world. It has very specific conditions in lots of ways in terms of the politics and the economics of the continent. But even so, it just struck me as a really interesting development and well worth noting just to say this is somewhere where People are putting a very significant price on carbon. It's having real effects on the economy, and they're showing that it can be done. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it's interesting to see where this go. I was in a discussion earlier today where it was essentially in this changing policy landscape in the wake of IRA and questions about how the rest of the world is going to respond to this more industrial policy approach to mitigating climate um, and other trends that are going on. How much carbon pricing and effective carbon pricing will influence different markets? So that's that's interesting. I hadn't clocked that that just happened. So thanks for flagging it, Ed. I'm going to go do some reading now. Yeah, as I say, in one sense, it's sort of an arbitrary landmark. In another sense, I do think it's well worth noting, as I say, that mm-hmm, that just is sure. a really significant price. So... I'm afraid we do then have to leave it there. Uh, Many thanks, Dr. Sarah Kapnick, for joining us today. Thanks very much for coming along. Thank you so much for having me. And many thanks, Melissa. Great to see you again. Yeah, it's great to see you, Ed and Sarah. It's good to see you again. 
enjoyed the conversation. I really did too. Thank you. Many thanks to our producer, Toby Begins-Gilchrist, and to our production assistant, Ella Miskin. And above all, many thanks to all of you for listening. As you know, we're always keen to hear your thoughts, praise, criticism, comments, complaints, ideas for future shows, whatever it might be. Please do let us know. You can find us on Twitter at, at the Energy Gang. I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. I'm also on Mastodon. I have to admit, I don't check that account very often, but uh, I have started to have a few interactions with people on Mastodon there. I'm at Ed Crooks at Mastodon.energy. So please do keep the ideas coming. Uh, let us know what you think. And we'll be back again in two weeks' time for all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>